0: (laughs)
1: Okay, Okay, folks, I think we're going to get started, if that's all right. Um, So for everybody here, thanks for attending the Earthquake Science Seminar weekly seminar series. If you're new, welcome. If you'd like to be added to our email distribution group, please send us an email. Um, Seminars are recorded, and mostly all talks are posted on the USGS Earthquake Science website. Uh, Closed captioning can be turned on by clicking on the CC icon on the More tab um, at the top of the page. Attendees, please mute your mics and turn off your cameras until the Q&A session at the end of the talk. Um, Feel free to submit your questions via the chat at any time or wait um, to turn on your camera and ask your question during the Q&A session. Um, A few announcements today, not too many. Um, First, foremost, and most importantly, if you'd like to meet with Margaret today, I sent out a schedule. Please sign up. Um, Even if you've already met her before, maybe you don't know about her science or to the depth, or you will after the talk, obviously. But, you know, get the chance, um, take the chance to meet with Margaret. Um, We will also be going to lunch after this somewhere off campus. So if you'd like to join, meet us somewhere out in the lobby outside of the uh, outside of the Yosemite room. Um, Also an important one. AGU and GSA deadlines are coming up very quickly. Um, See an email from Shane about that. They're right around the corner. I think AGU is August 2nd, for example, um, and there are internal deadlines that precede that. So keep on top of that. Um, This is your last chance to take the federal employee viewpoint survey. That is due on July 14th, two days from now. Um, And finally, there is a NASA happy hour today at 4. I hear there's free pizza. So if you're at 3.30, okay, even better. So, so um, if th- there's free pizza, um, if you're on Moffitt campus, you know, welcome to attend, it'd be a lot of fun. Um, with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Justin to introduce our speaker, Margaret.
2: Thanks, Curtis. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Margaret Glasgow. Uh, Margaret is originally from North Carolina where she grew up as a surfer. Um, She later transitioned to being a snowboarder, which as a skier I will not hold against her. Um, (laughs) She um, did her undergrad at UNC Wilmington and then moved to University of New Mexico and to show what a dedicated surfer she is. She actually uh found a standing wave in a river and went surfing there in New Mexico. Um she did her ma- master's and PhD working with Brandon Schmant. She's done a lot of different interesting work from volcanoes to the deep earth. She's not shallow like the rest of us. Um uh, and spent most of her PhD working on induced seismicity and uh that's what she, she's going to be talking about today induced seismicity in the Raton Basin and I think You'll get a little bit of a taste of uh, what she's working on now. Uh, she's only been with us since April and uh, is already making really good progress. So please, Margaret.
3: Thanks for that nice introduction, Justin. Um, yeah, so today I'll be talking about a couple of projects I worked on during my PhD. Um, and this is going to be focused on induced seismicity in an area um, on the Colorado-New Mexico border, which is the Raton Basin. And I feel like Justin already did a good job of summarizing my previous work, um, which there's a few pictures at the top of this slide to show um, those projects. And then also I spent a lot of time doing field work, so I just want to shout that out. Uh, But my current interests are looking at, uh, these are sort of in order, Uh, earthquake triggering uh, from Solid Earth tides in areas of induced seismicity. I'm also interested in foreshock and immediate aftershock activity, as well as I'm still interested in long period seismicity um, at volcanoes or potentially elsewhere. So the motivation for today's talk comes from um, this figure. Uh, we've actually seen this figure in the last two seminar talks. Uh, it's showing the. <laughs> it's inspiration, I guess, for a lot of people. Uh, it's showing the. Uh, large increase in the magnitude 3 plus uh, earthquakes for the central United States so the area here and so sort of a motivating question oh yeah shout out up here at the top to Justin (laughs) Um, so some of the or one of the motivating questions um, when we look at a figure like this is why have some regions of the central United States had an increase in the rate of magnitude 3 plus earthquakes and another thing I also like to think about, which kind of motivates me, is um, why don't we see an increase in earthquakes in regions where there's also wastewater injection, such as the Michigan Basin? Um, So what are some of the things that uh, are able to allow these areas to have this increase in seismicity? Um, And are there similarities between them? Uh, So this talk has three parts. The first two parts will be looking at the Raton Basin. And I'll be focused on understanding the seismicity and the fault geometry there. Um, and then the second part of the talk is sort of inspired from, res- from results from the first part, um, where we saw the cessation of seismicity in one of the previously active zones. Uh, so I'll investigate that in more detail. Why did the seismicity shut off there? And then I'll also look into details of the 2011 magnitude 5.3 main shock, which was the largest recorded event um, for the Raton Basin. And then lastly, I'll sort of intro the project I've been working on since I've been here at USGS, and that's looking at tidal triggering um, in uh, the central United States, in areas of induced earthquakes in the central United States. So I like to start with a little bit of geology. So over on the right, just for sense of scale, this is showing an outline of the basin. Oh, I realized my laser pointer's not on, one sec. Okay, cool. So this is showing uh, the scale of the basin. It's about 50 kilometers across and 100 kilometers long. Um, And then here is showing a map and there's a lot of features on here. So you can look at this legend, pick out whatever you wanna look at. Um, But the basin is located at this interesting sort of intersection of the Rio Grande Rift on this side, um, as well as the Rocky Mountains right here. And then on the eastern side uh, are the Great Plains. And you can see there's been extensive faulting, folding, and magmatism. Uh, So the black lines are showing the mapped faults, and the red lines are showing the mapped dikes or sills. And there's some pretty interesting features, such as this radial diking up here um, around the Spanish peaks. And then the sills follow the topography. In this case, uh, there's a river going through here. Um, other interesting features include that the area has high heat flow compared to other um, like, or continental sort of averages. And one thing I like to think about is uh, this final fact, which is that helium three plus um, is found in nearby springs as well as production wells. And this is a mantle isotope. So it suggests that there has been a permeable path between um, like the mantle and the shallow crust at some point. And that's interesting to think about when we're thinking about an area where we're injecting fluids. So then the more recent history, um, the basin, originally it was uh, coal was produced from the basin, but more recently, in the past few decades, uh, methane is produced. Um, And then wastewater is a byproduct of uh, the production operations, um, not intentionally. Uh, So the wastewater, some of it is... Clean enough that it can be poured straight into the river. But for the wastewater that's not clean enough to do that, it's reinjected um, into the ground. And so on this plot, we're looking at similar to the central US plot, we're looking at the number of magnitude three or greater earthquakes specifically for the Raton Basin, the black bars. And then the wastewater injection is the summed amount for the full basin, is plotted as a blue line. Uh, so you can see there was a large increase. Okay, just making sure the laser pointer is going. There's a large increase in the amount of wastewater being injected, and that's followed by an increase um, in seismicity in 2001. And this is about a decade prior to the central U.S. average um, increase. So I'd say Raton Basin is like a little bit ahead of the central U.S. average as far as seismicity. The largest recorded earthquake occurred in 2011, the magnitude 5.3 I mentioned. Um, this is also at the time of the peak wastewater injection rate. And then in the past decade, the wastewater injection rate has been declining um, and It's still sort of unclear how seismicity has responded. It definitely continues. It hasn't stopped. Um, so we're going to look at the, or on the right is sort of showing a summary of the seismicity from the USGS catalog for about 20 years. Um, It's been a difficult place to study uh, just because of instrumentation. So there were zero stations, long-term stations um, within 100 kilometers prior to 2008. So sort of in this period where there's the onset of the seismic activity. And then from 2008 to 2016, there was one station, the station right here. Um, that was recording continuously. However, there's been a few times of DENSER instrumentation, um, such as aftershock deployments um, in black during these times that are highlighted in black, and then the transportable array uh, passed through here from 2008 to 2010. And those, the studies using the DENSER instrumentation were able to identify three main zones of seismicity, These are known as the Tercio, Vermejo Park, and the Trinidad Zone. Uh, Each of the zones is suggested to have a throughgoing 8 to 15 kilometer long fault. And so our goal was to better understand the seismicity and the fault geometry using increased instrumentation as well as new methods. So we'll focus on this time period from 2016 to 2020. uh, Because in 2016, myself and Some of my colleagues at University of New Mexico installed seven broadband seismometers. So here is that single station that's been recording continuously since 2008. And we added these, um, the white triangles are showing all the seismometers, um, and we added these seven within the basin. Additionally, we uh, deployed uh, almost 100 node geophone array for a month in the summer of 2018. Those are these uh, yellow triangles down here. Oh, and we didn't install the wastewater injection wells, um, but I just want to mention that that's data we have access to. Uh, Those numbers are reported by the states of Colorado and New Mexico independently, and they report uh, one uh, volume of the wastewater that was injected per month. Okay, so in order to look at seismicity, we needed to build an earthquake catalog uh, If you remember, we installed the stations in 2016. Um, So originally, I was using a traditional workflow. I was using Antelope with a short-term average to long-term average detector and association step and then manually refining the phase picks. Um, But this workflow was interrupted (laughs) by um, these new machine learning phase detectors that were coming out um, in 2018, 2019. So we adapted our method and uh, also used a machine learning workflow. And Wei Chong gave a talk two seminars ago where he talked about um, the, the algorithm uh, he and Greg Rosa wrote called Phasenet. And this is showing what the output looks like from Phasenet for a P and an S arrival, uh, you get a probability. Um, So because we have these two methods of building a catalog, we can compare the results between them. And we compared 50,000 picks between the sort of traditional approach and the machine learning approach, and the top is showing the, um, the arrival time difference between our manual P phase picks and the machine learning phase picks. And on the bottom is showing the same thing, but for the S phase. Uh, and what we find is that 95% of the picks agree within a tenth of a second. And so we can't say which one's better. We can just say um, how they compare relative to each other. Um, so they agree fairly well. And on average, the machine learning picks are slightly ahead of the manual picks. So that's why this, these peaks are on the right. Uh, the machine learning approach resulted in five times as many earthquakes. So we move forward using um, the results from that. So here's a first look at the earthquake catalog. Um, On the left is showing the USGS catalog for 20 years, and on the right is showing uh, the catalog we're able to build using many more stations in a different method. Uh, We found 38,000 earthquakes during this four-year time period. They occur from three to six kilometers uh, below sea level, and the minimum magnitude of completeness is 0.6. And one of the obvious Things we notice right off the bat is that there's mostly only seismicity in two of the three seismically active zones that were previously identified and that third zone that isn't where we aren't seeing very much activity will be the focus of the second part of the talk but for now looking at where we did did see the seismicity um, sort of one thing we wanted to look at uh, as soon as we got the catalog was whether or not we could Um, find any sort of special thing about these induced earthquakes. Um, For example, induced earthquakes were suggested to have maybe lower stress drops or different B values, and it would be great to have uh, sort of a way that we could say, oh, this event was induced and not natural. Um, So we looked at a few different statistics, and I'll go over two of those. Uh, The first thing we looked at was the B value, um, which is one. Uh, So the the red line, the, the decay of the magnitude frequency distribution um, is one which would be like perfect for a tectonic setting, uh, so we don't see anything that's different um, than what we would expect in a tectonic setting, uh, so there's nothing special about the B value basically. And then the other thing we looked at is fitting the earthquake rate using ETOS, which works well for natural uh, earthquake sequences. and The red line is our observed earthquake rate, and the white line is the predicted earthquake rate using ETOS. Um, So, we're able to fit the induced seismicity well using ETOS. Um, And so, in the end, uh, the statistics we looked at are indistinguishable from those for tectonic settings, Um, at least at the space times we looked at and um, the specific statistics we were looking at. And this implies that. the Raton Basin earthquakes are predominantly releasing stored tectonic stress. Okay, now trying to get an idea about uh, the fault geometry. So uh, we performed a relative relocation technique in order to uh, associate the earthquakes with one another um, and get their relative locations. So here on the left are the absolute locations, which I've shown in a few figures. And on the right are the updated locations after um, relocation. And we're going to zoom in on this area where we see most of the seismicity. Um, so this is zooming in on that area uh, right here. <laughs> and the you'll see in the legend some of the geologic features. Um, but I'm going to focus on the areas where the earthquakes are, and the color of the earthquakes is or the color of each of these clusters is indicating the strike direction of the cluster from north at zero to 180 south. So the bluer colors are more east west orientations, and the red pink colors are more north south. Um, so we, fo- we found a diverse range of orientations. Um, if we summarize these, or if we uh, look at the distribution of all these in a rose diagram. Uh, what we find is that the fault strikes uh, fall predominantly within these northwest-southeast striking quadrants, uh, which was sort of surprising because the previous view had suggested through going north-south faults. And you can see this is a very different view where we have, like, short fault segments and a range of orientations. Um, We were sort of surprised, so we were looking for more evidence to back this up and looked at the fault plane solutions to see if they support this range of strikes. Um, first of all, I'll just say in summary of the fault plane solutions, or I'll explain this le- this figure on the right. So the red and white beach balls are from moment tensor solutions, and the purple and white, which are pretty small, everything's scaled by magnitude here, are showing uh, focal mechanism results. And those were calculated using the the nodal array. So there was actually 100 um over a hundred state or around a hundred stations down in the southern part during that time, um, and in general, we find good agreement between the fault strikes and the fault plane solutions, especially in this area, um, where we can see um, multiple or different types of orientations. And we were especially concerned in this area where it was suggesting more east-west strikes, but the the focal mechanisms agree with. Um, what we saw for the orientations of the earthquake clusters. So then that had us wondering uh, why do we observe observe such a large range in the um, sorry such a large range in the strikes, uh, and we sort of had two ideas that either the regional stress field is rotating, or local stress perturbations potentially from wastewater injection are sufficient at activating unfavorably oriented faults. So we looked at the regional stress field from this Lunstern and Zoback paper. The black lines are showing the uh, maximum horizontal stress, and the red square or rectangle is where the Raton Basin is. But I'm going to zoom in. So here's the outline of the basin and plotting the stress. Road. The stress orientations from the left figure in orange here. Um, this black box is highlighting where we have most of our seismicity um where there are not very many stress measurements uh but i think if you sort of consider these a uh, couple of pieces of evidence uh, i think what we're seeing is these east-west orientations which would be around here um are <coughs> rotating into these more north south to northwest southeast orientations um, and we're able to capture that through the seismicity here so in the end we think that uh the faults probably are optimally oriented and it's not necessary um, for there to be like local stress perturbations from the wastewater injection. Okay, moving into part two of the talk. So now we'll look at why we didn't see seismicity and that um, one zone called the Trinidad zone. And also look at details of the magnitude 5.3 main shock rupture. So here's showing the two zones where we saw, um, or where we found the majority of earthquakes, uh, the Tercio and Bermejo Park zones. And then if we zoom in on this zone right here, which we're doing in this figure, you can see there are a few earthquakes, but there's maybe 50 or 70 over this four-year period. In contrast, this is looking at um, two sort of snapshots when the area was active. Um, So in 2001, there was an earthquake sequence uh, that had a magnitude 4.5 main shock. And more recently in 2011, there was an earthquake sequence with a magnitude 5.3 main shock and this uh, magnitude 4.74 shock. Um, So these are Very different views. This is looking at four years and we see very little seismicity. This is looking at a couple of multi month arrays and we see a lot of seismicity surrounding these main shocks. Uh, But as I've mentioned earlier in the talk, the instrumentation has been variable and that's sort of led to an incomplete record of what does the seismicity look like continuously through time. Uh, So we're going to try to get at that. Another interesting thing about um, the 2011 earthquake sequence is that uh, there was a geodetic study. Um, So, here's showing the unwrapped interferogram, um, and you can actually see a signal, a surface signal from that um, event. So, here's the main shock location, the white star. Um, And what they did in this study was invert for the slip distribution. So, this is looking along depth. Um, And here, two sort of options for the main shock, but the main shock was towards the south and ruptured um, towards the northeast. And what they determined is that the rupture length for the main shock was approximately 8 to 10 kilometers, which is anomalously long for this um, sort of style of earthquake, um, as well as the magnitude. A normal rupture length would be more like five and a half kilometers. And so, because of the long rupture length, they suggested the event um, had a low stress drop. No. And so, our research questions for this part of the talk is, are, why was the rupture length for the magnitude 5.3 anomalously long, and then why did we observe so few earthquakes in the Trinidad Zone from 2016 to 2020? Um, and I want to highlight the instrumentation because that's going to guide um, our method. So this is looking at if we want to look at at more details about the rupture of the of the main shock, um, we need to know what seismometers were recording that day. So this is showing all the seismometers um, recording within probably I don't know a thousand kilometers across um, and tall. Um, so anyway, they You can see it. uh, We're looking far out. This is the state of Colorado, and this is the state of New Mexico. Here's the Raton Basin. Here is the legacy transportable array station, um, T25A, which has been recording since 2008. Um, So it's the closest station to the main shock. Um, And then the next closest station is right on this 100 kilometer uh, line. So there's only two stations. Well, I'll say there's only one station within 98 kilometers. (laughs) Um, So yeah, how are we going to study this earthquake in more detail with just a single station? Um, So the day after the main shock, there was an aftershock array that was installed and it recorded for nine months. And so we're going to try to leverage these two types of instrumentations To our advantage um, to study the main shock as well as this 14 year time period um, looking at the Trinidad Zone. So, I feel like the method's kind of complicated. So, I try to make this slide really simple. Um, So, we're going to take the aftershock array, the white triangles, plus this long term recording station, and build an aftershock earthquake catalog using a machine learning approach. Then, we'll take templates from all available sources. Um, and then we're going to use template detection to build a 14-year catalog using this single station. So not really going to review this because I already talked about it in the first part, um, but I'm only using a machine learning workflow here um, to get at uh, the phase detections and then the associations of the phase detections updating the earthquake locations using Esk and then ultimately using the same relocation method, which is FroClust. Okay, so this is our first look at, um, or we're about to take our first look at a map of the Aftershock earthquake catalog. The catalog has 3,500 earthquakes over the nine month period. Um, And after relocation, there are seven main clusters, and these figures are highlighting um, those, main clusters of seismicity. So here is showing the name of the cluster and the number of earthquakes per cluster. You can see when you move from this seventh cluster to the eighth, um, you're, you have over 100 events in the seventh cluster and then around 20 in the eighth. So that's kind of where we draw the line. Um, if we look at the cumulative number of earthquakes as we keep adding clusters, um, by the time we're at the seventh cluster, we're accounting for 95% um, of the seismicity. So we're just going to focus on those seven clusters. So the aftershock earthquakes form these distinct groups that you can see the colors over here. Uh, The gray dots are showing um, the smaller clusters. So beyond the seventh cluster, you can see there's also a few small clusters. Um, And the main shock epicenter is located towards the south near this cluster um, called S1. And sort of the the grouping of these um, clusters was surprising originally, Uh, but then I started thinking about how complex faults can be. Uh, So here's showing an imaging study of a normal fault in uh, New Zealand, and this is just for reference so we can all think about how faults aren't just planes. Um, And this is going in increasing depth. You can see different features along this fault as it's breaching. Um, So I think sort of like some of these features may be what we're seeing over here um, for this uh, aftershock catalog. And then another thing I was thinking about because I want to know more about the rupture is that multiple fault segments can slip during rupture and rupture can also be pretty complex. Uh, So here's just showing an example from the Ridgecrest event in 2019. Typically, we only see this for larger magnitude events like above magnitude 6.5. But I'd also say that typically people don't look at moderate magnitude events with much scrutiny, Uh, but in an induced earthquake setting, this is a large magnitude event. So I'm really like looking at it under a lot more scrutiny than somebody normally would. Okay, moving to the the template matching. Um, So that was the Aftershock array. We're going to take templates from um, or sorry, the Aftershock catalog, we're going to take templates from that catalog, the catalog I presented in part one from 2016 to 2020, as well as the USGS catalog. So pretty much any, <laughs> any earthquake that we can use um, for, from the station T25A, which started recording in 2008, um, we're going to try to build templates so we can get an idea of what the seismicity looks like over time during this area. And so the top is showing an example of one of the templates. Um, And then below, so this is north, east, and vertical components. Uh, And then below that is showing the newly detected events. So this earthquake here has a high cross correlation coefficient of 0.8 with the template. Um, And you can see a lot of the similar features. And then even for this, Event that has a 0.5 cross correlation coefficient, you can still see similarities um, with the template. It's just either a lower magnitude or sort of buried in the noise. So now I'm going to zoom in on a day before and a day after the main shock. This is kind of like our first look ever at um, what was going on around that that, um, sort of zoomed in time period. So this is all done using the template detection with a single station. Um, I've updated this map, removed, removed a few things and added a few things. Um, so I'll just review the seven clusters from the Aftershock array are shown as these different colors and they're labeled. And then the background, this dark gray area is showing the rupture um, from the best slip from the geodetic inversion. And then this red uh, polygon is showing the maximum slip patch. And then the larger white circles are either foreshocks or aftershocks from USGS. Um, They're scaled by magnitude. And then if they have moment tensor solutions, um, those are also plotted. Okay, don't worry, I'm going to break this down. (laughs) Um, So the left is looking at one day before and after the main shock. And at the top of... This, so this is a timeline um, and the bins are 30 minutes. And so at the top, the larger magnitude events are labeled. So here's the main shock um, time right here in the center. And first we'll look at the foreshock time. So the foreshocks are isolated um, to the south. So the blue colors, the cooler colors are um, highlighting these clusters in the south. Um, And then the warmer colors are highlighting the normal or northern clusters. Uh, So you can see that all of the foreshock activity in this day um, is occurring on these southern clusters. And it's mostly bouncing between cluster S1 and S2, which sort of bound the main shock epicenter. But the main shock hasn't happened yet, right? So we're just looking at the foreshock time. Um, And we think that uh, this sort of, Four shock activity supports the cascade up model, uh, wherein um, the foreshocks are basically testing the strength of these fault segments. Um, and then the main shock is able to grow into the magnitude, into the largest magnitude event because it meets favorable conditions for continued slip. Um, so maybe this 4.7 foreshock isn't doesn't grow into a 5.3 because it has a slightly different orientation. There's lots of scenarios you could make up. Um, So, then during the actual rupture, there's only the one nearby event or uh, seismometer. So, we can't do anything like a source time um, function. Uh, So, (laughs) our sort of simple approach was to just look at the energy development um, from the waveform envelope of the nearest station. Well, actually, we looked at the two nearest, but, you know, the second station's 100 kilometers away. But in both of those, we see um, multiple peaks in the in the envelope. And that suggests that uh, maybe, that suggests that um, energy was sort of released as pulses. As you could imagine these um, sections were slipping. Oh, and I should say that the rupture is, was estimated to be 2.2 seconds, so the gray is highlighting the time of the rupture. That's from the moment tensor um, inversion, not from our study, from USGS. Um, And then the maximum slip patch from the geodetic inversion in red here aligns with cluster S3. And then if we look at the time right after the main shock, um, there was triggering on these northern segments, which had previously been um, quiescent. There had been So I can look at the segments for three years prior to this time, and there was very little seismicity in the northern zone, especially in the months prior to to this time. And you can see there's no earthquakes um, to the north during this one-day period. Um, So we think that these uh, segments were triggered by uh, the main shock rupture. And then also there's activity that's um, sort of continuous on all the segments during this one day after, even the southern segments and so pulling all of that together into sort of a final interpretation of the rupture and fault geometry we suggest that oh these figures are showing um the color in these figures is showing uh depth and then we're sort of doubling up here because we're looking at the depth view and the colors still represent depth okay so um, we suggest that the main shock which started here uh, ruptured a southern fault and then Triggered seismicity between and on a northern fault. And if this is correct, then that would suggest that the main shock had a normal rupture length. Um, So a normal rupture length would have been like five and a half kilometers, and we're suggesting six kilometers from S1 to S3. And then we don't think that it was necessarily a low stress drop event, as previous study had suggested. And then something I just threw on here last minute because um, I like to think about why rupture stops, especially in an area like induced seismicity. Um, we don't know how large mag- how large of a magnitude event mm-hmm. we could have. Um, so I think the rupture may have arrested due to structural complexity um, between S3, which the maximum slip was near here, and N1. So something like a bend or an intersection between those two points, which I think is a little bit easier to see here. I think it's possible there's... a uh, third sort of feature that connects these two clusters and um, could have halted the rupture. Okay, so um, that was super zoomed in (laughs) to a day before and after the main shock. Now I'm going to zoom out to a 14-year time period um, so we can look at how seismicity has evolved because we have that template detected catalog. So, getting back to this question, why do we observe so few earthquakes? Um, This is just a different view of looking at um, how many earthquakes we saw in the Trinidad zone. So, these are color coded based off of which which zone um, we're looking at. So, the y axis is log scale. And we actually observed during this time that we were sensitive to detecting earthquakes in all these zones. Um, two orders of magnitude less seismicity in the Trinidad zone compared to these other two zones. And here is a similar figure looking at the cumulative number of earthquakes log scale from 2008 to 2022 for the Trinidad zone. Um, So this is a good way to see when there's a change in earthquake rate is if there's a change in in the slope of this line. Um, So uh, you can see that once we were sensitive to earthquakes in 2008 to the zone, we are detecting them. It takes a little bit of time to get this line sort of ramped up. Um, and then there's times where the earthquake rate is higher and right here it's um, you know just slowly inclining and then it slowly increases until you get to the time of the magnitude 5.3 and then we see a lot of earthquakes, um, which is expected. And then the part we're interested in is understanding this in more detail. And so you can see right after The magnitude 5.3 the earthquakes continue in the zone and this line keeps inclining but then by about 2015 um, the earthquake rate is sort of it looks like slowing down and by 2016 it's it's basically flatlining Um, and we're also adding this new detail that it's also been fairly inactive for the last two years because that other catalog only went to 2020. Um, and I should have said the gray bars in the background are showing any magnitude three or greater earthquake for the full basin. Um, So seismicity continued in the basin as a whole, it's just stopped um, in the Trinidad zone. And of course, something we wanted to look at was the wastewater injection, Um, since this is uh, something that we can, that we have available to us through the reporting by the states of Colorado and New Mexico. Uh, oh, These colors are really intense. Um, so I tried to simplify this to draw your eye to the things I, I want to talk about. So the red area is just highlighting the region that was active during the main shock and an during the 2011 earthquake sequence, and the green rectangles highlighting the area that was active during the 2001 magnitude uh, 4.5 earthquake sequence. And the blue squares are showing where the wastewater injection wells are. And over here is looking at um, the record, the full record of wastewater injection. Um, The solid blue line is for the summed injection for the whole region. The turquoise line, which is kind of hard to see, um, is specifically for this well right here, um, which is only a few kilometers from, you can't see it that well, but this is magnitude 5.3 so what we find uh, is that we can kind of start in 2008 where our catalog starts Um, wastewater injection was fairly constant during this time prior to the 2011 magnitude 5.3 and then a few months after that um, earthquake sequence uh, the wastewater injection rate was um, decreased and then by 2015 the rate really starts to drop off. And by 2016, it's at 80% of what it it had been um, previously. Um, And then as far as this well, if we just pull out the details about that, you can see that it's kind of controlling um, this uh, pattern that we're seeing in the summed rate. Um, And of particular note would be that the well was shut in in 2015 and hasn't injected since then. And so, we think that the 80% decrease in fluid injection by 2016 is likely responsible for the decreased seismicity we observe from 2016 to 2022. And that makes me think about Kayla's talk a lot from last week or two weeks ago. Okay, so conclusions for these first two parts of the talk. Uh, The updated view of seismicity includes 60 short faults with variable um, strike orientations. The Raton Basin earthquake statistics are indistinguishable from tectonic earthquake statistics. Uh, The 2011 magnitude 5.3 main shock ruptured multiple fault patches or segments, and the Trinidad zone has been seismically quiescent since 2016. And the bigger picture broader takeaways um, from this would be that seismicity persists in two of the three zones despite a decade long decrease in wastewater injection. Um, The Trinidad zone provides an example of the cessation of seismicity in an area that was previously very active and hosted the largest um, earthquake sequences of the basin. And then moderate magnitude earthquakes can have multi-segment rupture. Okay, moving into the final part of the talk. Um, so I'll still be looking at regions of induced seismicity, uh, but this is what I've been working on since I've been at USGS in April, and I'm excited to show you uh, what we have. But it's very preliminary, so I'll just say that. Uh, so the idea behind the project I'm working on is to try to determine the stress, the stress change that's capable of triggering earthquakes on faults in the central United States. And so the idea is to use um, tidal triggering to try to get at that um, real um, number that is able to potentially trigger earthquakes. But the first part of it is um, determining if there is tidal triggering in these regions of induced seismicity. And so the area I've been uh, targeting so far is Oklahoma, Kansas, just because there are um, very good earthquake catalogs there. And the one I'll be looking at for the next really only one sort of preliminary result um, is this catalog that has 300,000 earthquakes um, from 2010 to 2020, and here all the earthquake locations. And so, what we're wondering um, during this sort of first step is whether or not there's a correlation between Earth's tides and earthquake occurrence in regions of induced seismicity, specifically Kansas, Oklahoma, here. And so the way that I'm looking at this is by modeling the tides. Uh, the black line is looking at uh, the semi-diurnal or diurnal modulation of, um, of the, from the tides on the displacement of Earth's surface. Um, so that's the black line. And then the blue line is looking at the upper envelope of those semi-diurnal and diurnal um, modulations. And so that's actually representative of the fortnightly tide, where you have your strongest, um, your highest tides and your lowest tides during that 14, approximately 14 day period. And so what we do is calculate uh, the tidal phase of each earthquake in the catalog above the magnitude of completeness. So if an earthquake occurred at this red dashed line, that would be at approximately 30 degrees if we were looking at the fortnightly tidal phase, the blue line, positive 30. And this is showing our initial result for this area. So this is looking at the fortnightly tidal phase. Um, and what we find is that there are certain times, I'm just gonna zoom in a little bit. There are certain times where there are, are there certain tidal phases where we have more earthquakes and some where we have less. Um, and this is showing a result that looks sort of similar for tremor on the San Andreas fault. Uh, So we think that it's, that we're seeing a non-random earthquake distribution because of fortnightly tidal um, forcing. And so that's where I am now, where I would like to take this um, one day in the future, is uh, looking to see if the sensitivity to tidal triggering has changed in these regions. So this is just an example um, where uh, in this paper they've, plotted the monthly injection volume in blue. That's all I really want you to pay attention to. Um, And so for this catalog, we, for the catalog I'm looking at right now, um, it runs from 2010 to 2020. And so like a question that I have is whether or not uh, there could be stronger tidal triggering during something like peak injection, or maybe there's less triggering um, before this injection really ramped up. Okay, and then in final conclusions for this talk, um, the top three are for the Raton Basin. Uh, So short faults uh, with variable strikes host seismicity in the Raton Basin. The 2011 magnitude 5.3 earthquake ruptured multiple um, well-separated segments. And then seismic quiescence follows an 80% reduction in the injection volume for the Trinidad zone. And then the preliminary result for Oklahoma and Kansas is that we think we see non-random, a non-random earthquake rate during the fortnightly tide.
0: Thanks.
1: Turn on our Holly friend here. Um, Wait one second. Oh, sorry. I'm trying to find the. Should be good, I think. There we go. Um, questions in the room? Questions online? Henry? Margaret, I think that
0: was a really, really nice
1: talk.
0: Um, I have a lot of questions, but I'm curious about
3: the. You should sign up for a meeting time.
4: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: he, um, I'll start with the last part, the tidal triggering. So you showed the correlation between the fortnightly tidal
0: angle, right? But could you look for correlations just between the ampl- I don't know if you have tides. between the amplitudes of the, the tides, either the fortnightly amplitudes or the daily diurnal
3: amplitudes? Yes. Like
0: you have that, right?
3: Yeah. So I'd say I've looked at um, a few things. I'm just showing you the thing where I see something. Okay. <laughs> um, but interestingly the maximum displacement from the tide isn't correlated with the maximum number of earthquakes i think that has to do with the types of events so they're like strike slip and we have to look at fault orientation and things like that um so you're not necessarily going to expect when there's a maximum displacement from the tide you'll also get the maximum correlation not in an area like this i think that's more so expected and like a normal sort of situation. But yeah, that will be something that I'm looking at is the displacement. And then also the, I think that we're seeing something interesting for the, the rate of the displacement so the velocity mm-hmm. and sort of the peak in that, for the time being the peak. But to be continued, <laughs> great. Thanks for
0: the question.
1: Are there questions in the room?
0: Sure. Um- yeah, really nice talk, Margaret. Thanks. Um, I, uh, it's what you showed is really fantastic—the imaging of the actual fault structures using and seismicity—and I have a couple of related questions about that. So, um, one of your sort of speculations or hypotheses is that the rupture in twenty fifteen may have uh, sort of stopped or jumped or been inhibited by this sort of boundary between your mm-hmm. seismicity clusters. Um, so one question is why wasn't it stopped at the uh, between the other clusters, like between S2 and S3, right? You have sort of like the southern clusters. Oh,
3: yeah. We interpret those to be like along the same. Pole.
0: Sure. So, uh-huh. right. Okay. So that was my second question is like, how do these structures visible in the aftershock seismicity relate to the co-seismic slip? Plane and in particular, would would slip on these individual structures be compatible with the geodetic imaging that seems to show kind of a more coherent bullseye that looks like sort of a simpler structure?
3: Mm-hmm. You know, on a,
0: how, how, I guess, how do you think these aftershock planes relate to the? Coast
3: I'll seismic? say this caveat first we're doing the best we can with a single station. Looking at co seismic slip is going to be pretty difficult, I think. So we're basically relying on the locations of the earthquakes are set. We can't update those to the single station during this time period where we're zooming in here the two days. Um, so all we can say is where activity was happening right before and right after. Um, so it's really hard to say much about the actual two, two and a half second rupture. Um, The other part, what was another part of your question?
0: No, I, well, I think that's basically it. That was a helpful verification about the precision of the location or the accuracy of the
3: location. Yeah, I would say like this isn't showing, I'd say this, I think of the aftershock sort of locations as being like patches on this sort of southern fault that maybe had more slip or had slip. If we had really, Good details, maybe it would be like slip at the edge of the patch or something. Um, We could, I think we can talk about it a lot, but I'll say like this is an interpretation of the geology. Um, The planes are drawn really lightly because it's (laughs) reflective of the interpretation, but I think like given the moment sensor solution where the epicenter was, like it looks like um, the rupture moved northward across this area and it's fairly well aligned with the patches. Um, but I think of them as just like, these are some of the patches that slipped. We're not saying like, this is the only part that slipped.
0: Right. Okay. Doesn't the geodetic model, it incorporates the time span between the two right. times the satellite went over, probably It's all of those
4: clusters.
3: Yeah, it's including, Many, it's actually including, I think, multiple months of deformation surrounding. I think, like, the final interferogram that worked the best for that study um, was really relying on, like, maybe three or four months' time spans. So, so that would also explain your interpretation that
0: the fault's the actually shorter.
3: Yeah. Uh, That's genetic emergency. Right. So we see the seismicity in the same area, but we think that the main shock only ruptured the southern part and then uh, triggered seismicity up to five kilometers away from where it finished its rupture, which I think was between S3 and N1. Justin has a question.
2: Uh, this will be a softball. Um,
3: <laughs> no, go, go hard. Like, I don't
2: so care. So for, just, just to add a little clarification on the geodetic I mean like like any source diversion, there's there's a lot of smoothing. So it's I mean, and this is a particularly small group to be doing a genetic inversion based on are especially in that area, So that was, I don't, I wouldn't expect there to be any real correlation between sort of these individual pieces of yeah. in the fault that she's seeing. Um but my question is about the sort of the Trinidad zone turning off while the Tercio and Rameo Park stay on, Is the injection relatively constant in those other two areas?
3: Um, that's a good question. I don't have anything in this talk that's gonna show besides the summary
0: injection.
3: Let me just think on my feet.
0: Well, i go back to this slide, okay.
3: Um, Yes, so if you remember, I can't show them side by side, but if you remember this uh, injection had sort of, this doesn't go all the way to 2022 like the other figure, but injection for the Trinidad zone has sort of. The main injector completely shut in by 2015 and the injection there was reduced by 80% by 2016. Uh, but you can still see that there is injection happening in other parts of the basin. Um, so it, it's decreased. It's like half of what it was during its maximum. Um, but also most of that decline is from the the injection shut, turning off, mostly turning off in the Trinidad zone. They still inject
0: a little bit of water there. I have a question about
4: injection
0: lines. So you're reporting. Monthly volumes and I'm uh, <laughs> the grain of those data.
3: So, the what of the data?
0: Like, sort of green is is a monthly reporting. It's probably sufficient for, for that. Are, would, would it be beneficial to have daily volumes or changes oh. in pressure? <laughs> oh, that
3: would be amazing. <laughs> I would love that. We only have one volume per well per month. Um,
2: so I'm wondering what additional questions you could ask if you had more detailed injection data.
3: I mean, if you just think about like we can, we're not limited by time as far as getting at an earthquake rate, or we're not limited by samples, right? We have hundred samples per second or something like that. Um, it would be great to even just have a daily sample, um, so we could better compare it to the earthquake rate uh, at this scale we only have so many points for the injection volume. I'd also say there's times with the injection volume where I see some things that are kind of questionable um, from the state reporting. Uh, I actually removed one of those plots because I was like, it's just too confusing to explain that sometimes they report zero and sometimes they don't report a number. And so you're kind of left with these, like, did they really go zero when they were injecting at 400,000 barrels per month? Um, So I think even just daily, daily values so we could try to search for like um, a correlation and also maybe a lag um, with the seismicity. But yeah, I don't really zoom in that much on the injection just because it's hard to look at a a finer scale than like a year.
1: Um, We we have some questions online. Oh, I
3: had one more thing to say. Oh, yeah,
1: go for it, (laughs) Margaret, go for it.
3: Uh, Speaking of like the pressures, I didn't say this because I didn't have enough time. Um, I know a lot about the injection volume. Uh, as you know, I know as much as you can know almost just from like reading um, a lot of documents that have been posted by the states. But they actually don't inject under pressure at most of the wells in the Raton Basin. The water just like freely goes into the ground, which is different than although the one well that's near the 2011 magnitude 5.3, I've seen like they sometimes inject under pressure there. That's the only well where I've seen that. So I think that's an interesting fact, but it's really like in the piece, so.
1: Um, Jens, do you want to unmute yourself and ask your question?
4: Sure, thanks, Curtis. Um, margaret that was very interesting i think there's a lot of great research questions uh, that you've tackled and are tackling and that is a super interesting area as well so i quite enjoyed um i well first i guess first i'll make a comment about the stress uh in the area which you are i mean i totally agree that it's very complicated it looks like it rotates um when i have looked at those earthquakes and specifically from your data set with Wang, i think i think we've talked about I think we've included you in emails about that, hopefully, but um, anyway, uh, we see that some of those fault planes seem to require unreasonably high pore pressures to fail, like 10, 20 or 30 megapascals at seismogenic depths, which is hard to explain, especially given what you just said about pore pressure. Um, I'm not saying all of them, but I'm talking especially about the group to the southeast. Uh, so in northern New Mexico, your main cluster. And I don't remember now whether that's in the broadband or nodal array that y'all y'all were working with, but um and probably a large portion of that is just the uncertainty in the stress in the stress data that you mentioned. But I do think something kind of complicated and interesting is going on there that we just don't have enough stress data uh, to say. So that was the comment about stress. My other my question was about those, the sort of the geometry of some of the um groups of events that you're seeing Uh, and it looked like when you were showing one of your later figures uh, this would be for the Trinidad area I think um, that it looked kind of like they were tube almost like -like, tube-like pipe-like kind of shapes um, forming yeah like that and I've seen that in um, your group's earthquake locations further to the south as well I think in northern New Mexico where there's one in particular that I um, can think of that the uppermost ver- to, you know, lowermost events distance is like three kilometers and it doesn't form a nice plane, but they are very tightly constrained in space. So I was wondering if you have thoughts on those, whether it's depth uncertainty um, to blame or whether there might be some kind of, whether it's a real sort of um, phenomenon like fluid moving up through conduits or something. Thanks for the question. Um,
3: And I actually wanted to show some of your and Regia's work for looking at uh, the really complex slip behavior, um, zooming in on some of those faults, um, but didn't have time to go over that. But it's in the back of the the slideshow. Um, Yeah, so I think that's a great question. Uh, I'd say the second project that I presented really made me think more about um, the earthquake locations. there is a bootstrap uncertainty, which suggests that the locations are like correct within a hundred meters or so. Um, for the second project, it's funny because I know the earthquake locations are—they're really important. Um, but I think the earthquakes—the way that the relocation works—is they're being grouped by their um, waveform similarity, and so I still think that these distinct sort of clusters exist. I don't think that the ne- that the geometry is necessarily perfect, especially for the second project, um, for clusters S1 and S2, which are actually right sort of at the edge of our array. So if you sort of draw a line here across um, where our like, array footprint would be. Um, but I guess that's kind of my take on the locations. Uh, I think we should talk more about with the first project locations. I'm not sure exactly which area to the southeast. Um, if you're talking about the most southeastern earthquakes, that would be from the same problem of here are the two stations and they're outside of the array footprint. Um, so the next. No, I'm not talking
4: about those because those form those like really kind of amazing normal fault planes. It was something further north than that.
3: Oh, okay. I thought you said southeast. Um, Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I think, um, I guess what I would say is, I have started to think more that maybe a lot of these features are segments of faults. Uh, and the best figure I have for that is kind of just looking at actual imaging of a normal fault um, from this Gibba et al. study in New Zealand. It's just thinking about maybe we're picking up on some of these sort of In echelon features or segments of the poll. Um, Yeah, I'm not sure, but I'd love
0: to talk about it more.
1: Um, It looks like Christine had a comment. Did you wanna read that out loud, Christine, or address that? Um, Perhaps. Here, I can just read it aloud. So, um, looking forward to your work on the, this is from Christine Buleg, looking forward to your work on the tide triggering. During the development of the NGA East database, we had a strong teleseismic data to filter out um, from the seismograms. I was always curious on the potential triggering effects from the sources of those signals, slack, uh, tidal plus offshore storm. So, looking forward to your future. Oh, cool. Um, any other questions in the room or online? Um I I had a question. The this concerns the uh, maximum slip. Um was was the maximum slip for this earthquake, which you showed a picture of, but I forget what it was. Was it typical for a magnitude 5.3 main shot? The, you, you showed a, a, like the a, a slip distribution on the, the main fault, the rupture plane. Yeah, that's so that's the
3: right. maximum slip, like this patch city so case, yeah. they suggested 18 centimeters but as we were talking about they're looking at a multi-month sort of signal so and they're assuming all the slip happened on one fault plane um okay so maybe you would kind of (laughs) need to add all of the seismicity together to get like an idea of how much how much slip there'd be so you need to like add the 5.3 and the 4.74 shot And then
4: all of the aftershocks um because in the end
3: that's what the inversion is is uh sensitive to all of the slip that happened
1: during the time okay well there's always inherent uncertainty which you've described pretty well but uh what was the slip that you would take literally from the diagram there and i can't quite see the scale in the lower left corner but uh was was that fairly typical for a 5.3 or unusual
0: in
3: any way? Oh, so the the length of the slip was pretty long. Like I think the sum of, uh, I'm not sure. I I haven't thought about like the the sum of the slip from that paper. I know they suggested the event was low stress drop. That was to account for the longer rupture length than is typical. I assume they kind of make the slip for a regular 5.3 fit into this sort of framework, but I don't, I can't say um, exactly
0: what they did. Okay. In the inversion.
1: Unless there are any other questions. Going once, going twice, I think we'll call it there. Uh, let's thank our speaker again.